morning, everyone. It is a good morning. I uh, got here this morning early and uh, saw the sign on the front uh, of the church said, send our students to Mexico. And I thought, well, that's one way to give parents a break, but I'm all in. <laughs> send them. Uh, it has actually been a tough week, and I wanted to share a little bit of that with you. Um, you remember last week I shared with you about my friends, Donnie and Stephanie Allison, and uh, his battle with cancer. Uh, early this week, I got a, a call from Stephanie in tears asking me to come up to the hospital because the doctor was on his way to inform them that there's really not much more they can do. And so I stood there as the doctor explained how the cancer had become more pervasive than it had ever been and that his body had tolerated about all the chemo that they could throw at him. And uh, they were going to take a couple of weeks to give him a break, but the prognosis didn't look good. Um, the doctor and the family left the room, and I was there with Donnie and Stephanie, and uh, <laughs> that was hard. And part of it was hard for me personally because it brought back a lot of memories. Uh, Donnie reminds me of my brother, and, uh, and so it was difficult to kind of relive some of that emotion as he... Uh, is dealing with the reality of his own mortality. But we cried together, we hugged each other, we prayed, and we reminded each other of the hope that we have in Christ and the importance to cling to that, especially during times when all of our emotion and all the news seems hopeless. Um, But inside of that apparent hopelessness is an ever-present hope in Jesus Christ. And so we clung to that together. But it has been something that, you know, continually comes to my mind. And so (laughs) there were several times as I prepared this week that I just had to stop and take a deep breath and pray for my friends and then get back to uh, what I'm doing to prepare for this morning. So as you think about it this week, I know Donnie and Stephanie and their six-year-old boy, Zach, would appreciate your prayers um, and just lift them up before the Lord as they come to mind. Um, I know they've been would be encouraged. I told them that we would be praying for them as a church family. The disease of cancer can be devastating, can't it? And, and we have probably all, whether directly or in some relation to somebody we love, been impacted by that. Uh, benign tumors are dangerous, but they're treatable because they can be contained. Uh, they really live within a boundary. Uh, but Malignant tumors, on the other hand, infiltrate the entire body. It's like a a mutiny within the body. As cells become disloyal, they no longer want to act in regard to the rest of the body. They selfishly seek their own way, destroying innocent, healthy cells in the process. And when the mutiny becomes pervasive, it becomes deadly. This morning, Paul will address a concern in the Philippian church. At this point, it appears to be benign. It has not become pervasive, and so the danger is treatable if swift and specific action is taken. But if it's ignored, things like Paul will describe this morning can become malignant. And when disunity becomes pervasive, It becomes deadly. That's why it's important for us to examine it this morning. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we uh, come before you, and I guess, first of all, I want to pause with my friends and family to, to pray for Donnie and Stephanie and Zach. We pray that in this moment, you just give them a great sense of your presence, and in that presence, your peace, that they might find rest in you and hope in a time where things look hopeless. I pray that uh, they are encouraged to know that they are being lifted up. Father, we pray that as we examine your word this morning, that it will ring true in our hearts in such a way that it changes our lives, changes our church, it changes the world around us. Uh, We say that uh, almost too easily, but that is the power of your truth when it is transforming in our lives and spoken to the world around us. So may that be evident as we examine it together this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Let's pick up where we left off last. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. If you will read along with me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first thing I want you to notice about what Paul writes here is that what he says is grounded in a deep, deep love. These people, including those he points to specifically, are his beloved brethren. They are his joy and crown, a people of whom he is very proud. He is encouraged by their steadfast faith, and we know that they have been faithfully supportive of him in his ministry. He looks back on what he's taught them thus far. This life that he has called them to, that is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ that considers the needs of others as more important than their own, that follows the pattern of of Jesus Christ and the testimony of His church. He says, Beloved, stand firm in these truths. And in this context, he, He then turns to a specific situation involving specific people, and He says, I urge Euodia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now I can imagine that as this letter was being read to the Philippian church, there may have been people who were dozing off. But when they get to this place, where specific people are mentioned, and a specific situation was identified, he has everybody's attention. And I think the reason is, is because Paul just uncovered the elephant in the room. There, was a, there are a number of things that we don't know about this situation, but there is a lot that we do know that's important for us to understand. First of all, we know that these are women of influence. They shared in Paul's devotion, and they are partners in ministry with the apostle. I believe it's safe to say that there were many, even in this Philippian church, who had come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because of these sisters in the Lord. They were not 
insignificant troublemakers. They were respected women of influence, even by Paul the Apostle. Frontline workers in the cause of Christ. But that witness was being disrupted by disunity. And since Paul gives no specifics, we can be certain that this was not an issue of a a doctrinal error. You and I both know that Paul does not pass by those issues of concern. We can also determine that no one person was at fault. It was an issue that both of these women held a responsibility in. But as benign as it might have been in the moment, he knew the the danger of disunity and the disease that it can create when it infiltrates the body. And so he calls the church to quick action. Now, he doesn't solve the problem for the church. He calls the church to solve the problem. He, He urges specific people into action and instructs them how to help these women resolve this issue, both for, for the sake of the women and, and their relationship with one another, but more importantly, for the well-being of the church. As I examined this text and, and the context in which it is written, I, I believe that what we have in the Philippian church is a situation where people have become uh, contentious instead of learning to be content they're upset because they're not getting their way and instead of seeking compromise they they dig in their heels and hold their ground we see this very same thing in the church today when people demand that unity necessitates uniformity that that we all have to be exactly alike and if you're different you're wrong i had lunch with somebody Within the last few weeks, a very faithful part of our church family for a very long time. And he made an observation that's really stuck with me for, for some time now. He said, Todd, have you ever noticed that our church consistently attracts a predominant personality trait? He said, by and large, Melanie Park appeals to the type A driven person people who are intense about the the study and understanding of god's word and and they're determined to find the right answer to to all the hard questions now let me explain this is not a bad thing at least i hope not because i think i'm one of those people okay but it can be intimidating so he went on to say when someone comes into our church who doesn't fit that mold it's uncomfortable for them and he said very often i don't think they stay very long But Todd, he said, I think we need those people who don't fit our mold. It's just not healthy to have a whole bunch of people who are just like us. We need people who are satisfied in their relationship with Jesus Christ without having all the answers to all the hard questions. We need people who appreciate the art of our faith and not just the science. I thought a whole lot about this observation, and I think he has a point. Admittedly, it's much more difficult to find unity in diversity. But I believe, and I bet you agree, that the portrait of Jesus Christ sure is breathtaking when there is a full array of colors, personalities, of gifts and abilities. No one is better than the other, but but as a church, we benefit from that balance don't we? 
we should be mindful of this as, as we encounter people who see things from a different perspective. Different does not necessarily mean wrong. Remember, unity does not demand uniformity. Now, I like what Melanchthon says on this topic when he says, in the essentials, yes, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I believe these two women in the Philippian church were refusing liberty in the non-essentials and their pride inhibited their ability to deal with it in charity. The church was passive and Paul calls them to action. Let's look at his remedy for discord. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Four key things Paul points to here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle. Be anxious in nothing. Be in prayer. This is the remedy that Paul gives for discord. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle. Be anxious in nothing. And be in prayer. I think it's important for us to see how Paul begins with rejoicing on the Lord, focusing on what we have in common and not what divides us. He calls us to put our minds and our eyes on Jesus and what he says to be true instead of ourselves and what we say to be true. This is not about me and my reputation. It's about him and his reputation. Not about what I think, but about what he says. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, you know that there are some good and godly people in the church who see things differently, aren't there? The question is, how do we work through those differences? I think these women saw things differently. And they allowed their differences to create discord. Everything was black and right, white, right or wrong. And... They were not living in harmony. And Paul says, let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. Now, this word forbearing is somewhat of a difficult word. If you were to take three different translations of the Bible, you're going to find that there's a different word for forbearing in each of those translations. But it's, it, it's not difficult in the sense that they all basically mean the same thing. What it means is describing someone who is, is gentle or reasonable it's the word that is used in second corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 when paul says now i paul myself urge you by the meekness and here's the word gentleness of christ it's the character of christ when he gave kindness when their expected response was retaliation it's the character of christ that when he was not easily offended but was patient slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. He was gentle. And Paul calls us to exhibit this character, and he informs us that the possibility is made possible because the Lord is near. 
that phrase almost seems like it doesn't fit, doesn't it? It's just kind of almost added on. But I don't believe that's true. I, I think what Paul is telling us here is that in this context, the Lord is near, meaning He is ever-present. His Spirit indwells us. This character that we are called to exhibit exists and is made possible because His presence is imminent. He is with us. He is near us. You see, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit that is exhibited in surrender and inhibited in pride. We talked about this last week as we discussed how spiritual pride rejects the work of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual pride segregates us into factions, to little subgroups within the body. We become contentious instead of content, harsh instead of gentle. We can't work through our differences when our tongue is sharp and our patience are thin. Remember the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle. And as Paul says next, be anxious in nothing. Now, I, for one, am very familiar with the emotion of anxiety. <laughs> and, and I think all of us, to some degree, experience anxiousness. It's common among all men. The anxiety is that emotion that we feel when we want to be in control and we're not. When we want to fix things. But we can't. I know for Terry and I, we experience that emotion in our house when our kids make bad choices and we all suffer the consequence. Somebody's in a a bad mood and throwing a fit and pretty soon it invades all of us. We want to control our kids' behavior in order to produce peace in our home. But we can't control their choices. Now we can train them in such a way that there are consequences to bad choices in hopes that they will make good choices, but it's still their choice. We will never be able to produce peace in our home by controlling the behavior of our kids. And the more we try, the more anxiety we will feel. And something tells me by observation that this doesn't change when our children become adults, does it? We even see this in our marriages. When we try to control the emotion of our spouse and we get frustrated. Would you please be happy? I'm doing all the right things. Just snap out of this. Or maybe it's the raise we didn't get in our job or the grade we thought we deserved in school. Worry about things in the future that may never happen or things in the past that we simply cannot change. All these things create anxiety because we want to be in control. But we're not. Anxiety winds us tight and affects the way that we relate to others. Because it's hard to be humble and in control at the same time, isn't it? Gentleness and anxiety rarely coexist. Anxiety really is a selfish emotion that promotes us to the throne of our life, the captain of our ship, the master of our soul. But here's the good news. Anxiety loses its foothold when we relinquish that control. 
relinquishment. And I know it's more than just the simple thought of just letting go. When we relinquish control, we have to take something out of our hands and we've got to do something with it. And I think that's the direction that Paul gives next when he says, be anxious for nothing, but with everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Rejoice, be gentle, be anxious in nothing, be in prayer. Prayer is that place where we relinquish control. It's a posture of humble dependence. It's it's the attitude that confesses that apart from you, I can do nothing, just as Paul reminded us this morning, and, and I'm okay with that. Lord, I need you. I was visiting with HUD this past week, and, and he gave me a real-life example of something he's walked through recently that, that fits perfectly into this context. He shared with me about a, a young man who was new in his marriage and, and was frustrated as they were working through some difficult issues in regards to, to finances. It's a common issue when we get married because we've lived life apart from each other and it's our stuff and, and we do what we want to with it, but now all of a sudden we hold everything in common. So, so how do I know what's mine and what's yours? And if it's mine, shouldn't I be able to do what I want to do with it? Right? Sound familiar? But this was a godly couple. And they were trying to work through things. And the husband came a little bit frustrated and said, I just can't get her to, to see my perspective. And so HUD asked him, well, have you prayed for her on this issue? Well, I mean, uh, no, not really. <laughs> and so HUD wisely instructed him. He said this, don't bring up the topic for the next 30 days. Don't initiate the conversation. Don't bring up a new point. Just pray for your wife and her heart and see what happens. 26 days later, this gentleman came to HUD and said, You won't believe it. Her heart has changed. She came to me. I didn't say a word. And we've agreed to walk through this together and we're on the same page. He said, this is a lot better than when I was in control. You see, that's a difference. Prayer puts us in a place where it's not our problem to fix, but it is our responsibility to pray. We relinquish our control and anxiety loses its foothold. We see how God does His work and we rejoice in the Lord because He's near. The result is a peace that passes understanding. My friend Stephanie Allison wrote on her Facebook the day after that devastating news from the doctor. She said this, I feel God surrounding me with His arms this morning and telling me, there's nothing that you can't do. Trust in me. Okay, Lord, she said, I submit and trust this one is in your hands. Can anyone explain that? I know for me that surpasses my understanding. How someone could come to that place in the midst of such tragedy other than our God is good and he is faithful and his peace passes understanding. And did you notice that both in our text as well as the testimony of Stephanie, that the peace exists whether the request is granted or not. It's the trust that we have when we know something to be true, even in the emotion of our circumstances that that try to convince us of something different. 
It's choosing to, to believe in the promises of God instead of the lies that, that so easily burden our heart. And in the context of, of community, it is our contentment in His control that prevents us from being contentious with one another. I can't change your heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is my responsibility to pray. And as I do, maybe He changes my heart as well. The church is equipped to deal with disunity. Paul gives the remedy as he instructs us to to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, focus on what unites us and not on what divides us. He calls us to gentleness, a, a kindness, when the expected response is retaliation. Slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen. And, and we can only do this when, when we relinquish control, when we remove it from our hands and we, we place it into His. We can only promote peace in our relationships when that peace exists in our own heart. And that peace comes from His presence. And we experience it as a fruit of the Spirit in our passionate pursuit of knowing Him more. Moving forward from the remedy, Paul now gives us a dose of of preventive medicine. Look at verse 8 with me. He says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. You see, we prevent our heart from being burdened by filling our minds with what is true. Paul says, dwell on these things. Literally, that means ponder without ceasing. In order to get a better picture of this, I found that it was good to consider this verse from an opposite perspective, an opposite angle. Let me explain. I'll read it to you like this. Finally, brothers, whatever is a lie, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is degrading, whatever is not commendable, If there is anything that is not morally excellent, if there is anything that does not honor God, do not think on these things. Looking at it from this perspective, you see that Paul is really calling us to a discipline of of refusal. Thinking on what is right begins with refusing to entertain the, the thoughts that are false, that are not true, that are not from God. Let me give you an example. I sat with somebody in my office this past week. This person is a sincere follower of Christ. We were talking about this idea of pleasing God. We were wrestling through this idea of learning the difference between working for your salvation and working out your salvation. Obedience to achieve righteousness and obedience because of righteousness. And he said to me at one point with tears in his eyes, what if I don't feel righteous? Thinking on what is right often begins on deny, with denying what is false. Accepting truth begins with rejecting lies. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
That is who you are as a child of God. That is truth. That is truth that we must accept over the emotion that often tries to convince us of something different. Accepting truth begins with rejecting lies. This is the confession of the psalmist when he writes in Psalm 100, verse 1, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. Now listen to this. I will ponder, there's our word, the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Paul calls us to set aside what is worthless in order to consume what is true. To set our minds on that which is honorable and just and pure. This describes a focus on moral excellence and an integrity that is not tainted with the presence of evil. It is the decision not to compromise even when no one else is looking. He calls us to set our mind on things that are, that are lovely and commendable. Thoughts that translate into behaviors that are winsome and of good rapport with others. These are the decisions to com- not to compromise even when people are looking. It is a reputation that is undefiled when we choose to take the high road even at personal expense. Paul calls us to, to fill our minds, to, to ponder these things because we cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. In other words, your heart can only bear fruit of the seeds that you have planted in your mind. It is a truth. I know it's a truth because it's essentially what Jesus says in the parable. These are his words. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. This is really important. So let me be clear. Paul warned us last week of the worldly influence that surrounds us. Those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things. There is a constant invitation to accept things that are not true, to justify what is dishonorable, to flirt with the impure. There are no shortage of thoughts that are not morally excellent and paths that do not honor God. Are you refusing the invitation? Have you developed the discipline of refusal? And equally as important, are you teaching your children to do the same? Remember, the goal is not to to eliminate the influence of the world. It's to help them know how to stand strong in the midst of it. But it begins with the discipline of of refusal, refusing the invitation of the world and, and welcoming in what God has revealed to us to be truth. You can only bear fruit from the seeds that have been planted in your mind. Your behaviors always represent what fills your heart. That's why Paul says, these things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. I want you to think about this. Paul is calling us to the discipline of our minds. But he's equally clear that we cannot say that we have learned a truth until we see that truth lived out in our life. Noble thoughts have little value unless they are translated into deeds. And when we walk in good deeds, it is always, it is always the result of what God has prepared beforehand. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence in our life, not by our gritty determination, but by our humble submission. The life we are called to live is always a response to God's initiative. And when we walk with Him, we live in peace with Him and with one another. As you consider what we've looked at this morning, some of you may need to apply the remedy for discord. You may be the cause or you may be the recipient, but the remedy is the same. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle. Be anxious in nothing. Be in prayer. Don't be passive. Take swift action. The benign is still dangerous because of the propensity to become malignant. Don't take that chance. Seek to be at peace with all men and give special preference to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for all of us, we need to develop the discipline of refusal, denying the invitation of the world, which is increasingly eroticized, violent, and intolerant of Christ. Don't invite those things into your mind. Refuse to participate in what the world has deemed acceptable. Remember the words of the psalmist as he asks and answers a most important question. Listen to his question. He says in Psalm 119.9, How does a young man keep his way pure? How do we, men and women, boys and girls, keep our way pure? Listen to his answer. By guarding it according to your word. With your With my whole heart, I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments, he says. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hide his word in your heart. Take every thought captive in the obedience of Jesus Christ. Seek to know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Demonstrate what you've learned by what you do. Translate your biblical thoughts into godly action by walking in the good works that He that He has prepared beforehand. The fruit of the Spirit is always evidence in our life, not by our gritty determination, but by our humble submission. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You and pray that we are those people who are quick to rejoice in you, the gift that we have in you, the salvation that we have in you, the price that you paid for us, the grace that you have given us. There are so many things that unite us that we can focus on and rejoice in together. May we be a people who do that. Father, help us to be gentle. There are differences because the church includes people. 
And, and we all have things that we are working through at different places. So help us to be soft with each other. Caring, compassionate, reasonable, not quick to anger, but peaceable. And Father, help us to be anxious in nothing, nothing, that we would remove that foothold of anxiety by relinquishing control no way better than the posture of prayer as we submit ourselves, our cares, and things that surround us in our world that are so important to us into your sovereign, loving, compassionate hands. Father, help us to to be faithful to translate these good thoughts into good deeds. Help us to take what we know in our head to allow it to penetrate our heart and then to move our feet into action that is evidence of what we know to be true with each other first as brothers and sisters in Christ and and then to the world around us for your namesake. It is your reputation, not ours. May your name be made great in the lives of your people, in the lives of those at Melanie Park. We pray this in your name. Amen.